Imagine this scene. I'm at someone's wedding. They are doing the kiss. Like the kiss is the money shot. And I don't know how to operate the camera. Welcome to Everyday Leadership, podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways. And on this podcast, they share their stories, their life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are pressure, let's go. everyday leaders. In today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Michael Kay. He is a serial entrepreneur of so many different businesses in so many different industries. That's what makes this so so fun. I'm going to get into this interview. How are you doing, Michael? <laughs> I'm I'm good. Um, just came back um, into the country 48 hours ago, and it's been nonstop. Um, I mean, you know, it's good. It's better to wear out than to rust out. So I'm glad that we're busy and we've got stuff to do. So and thanks for having me. You know, I'm working around my schedule. Grateful. Nah, no, no problem at all, man. I love um, having conversations, especially with with black entrepreneurs like yourselves who, who are doing who are doing things, who are making moves in in different industries. And I'm we'll always we'll curious. Try. Like how even the come up story because yours is while reading this research into you like yours is very very intriguing. How did you go from English literature degree at Goldsmith to serial entrepreneur having like multiple businesses from the restaurant to the barber shop to um, a contracting business and the econ business they have in bathrooms and all that? What's how did you go from one to the other one? Do you know what is? I think that question is a question that plagues me. I get asked that question so often by so many different people, which is how do you diversify? How do you get to the point? And I have a very real story. And some of my story is, sounds weird. And people kind of, there's nothing autobiographical about my story. It's just, it's a no brainer. Um, it usually comes off from you paying a supplier 11,000 pounds to do something. And you're like, what exactly are you doing? And when they explain what they're doing to you, you're like, mate, <laughs> I can do this. And then, you know, it's a matter of speaking to other people who are already in the field and then you diversify into that. But for me, I, I started in, with English literature um, because I come from an environment that, you know, learning to speak or being able to speak was a foreign concept. We used to, we would use, you know, slangs and street librettos and, um, you know, we just like, well, gone. You, you know, that's how we spoke. And, I, and yeah. I think that's connected to emotional intelligence because most men, random, but most men can't express themselves because they don't have the vocabulary to express themselves. And I just took it upon myself to go and study English literature so that my whole language and how I go come across, how I communicate, how I articulate myself can actually change. I had no interest in being a school teacher. Um, as my mom stated, when she found out I was studying English literature, she cried. You want to be a school teacher? I know it was far from that. It was just more about empowering myself. How's it, so have you always had that entrepreneurial that gene and that spirit that driving your, 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 your body from data? Or was that part of the long-term process of you discovering who you are and what you're about do you know is i i think being again of african descent particularly nigerian there is this economical competitive nature about being nigerian that nobody wants to address and to some people it is toxic but to those that have been able to rise to the occasion like myself it has been a major push for those of you that may not be you know familiar or akin to that kind of notion or idea being nigerian you could be the oldest son if you are the poorest you become the youngest son Money is at the forefront of what we do within our culture. It's it's everything. I don't know whether it's the disparity, the poverty, the lack thereof in where we've come from that's made it that way. But for me, I was always the firstborn, but my father made it quite, you know, he, he was quite plain about it. You are only my son if you're successful. Wow. Yes, toxic, like I said. Um, but for those that were able to rise to the occasion, it's been an amazing push. And so that's where I come from. I come from an environment which is you have to make money um, and you have to bring honor to your parents' household um, as, as much as possible. So I think that was the impetus and the push for me, actually, from a young age to just do and become something and own something. When, when did you have that conversation with your, with your dad when he made that statement? I, I think the first time I said dada, I think that that was that. that I think he was as immediate as that. <laughs> you know, he was like, listen, I'm not your father unless you become something with yourself. And, you, you know, and, and it's it's that frank, actually. Um, and the, even more so, it's an undertone. It's it's a speech. I think the speech clearly was probably at the age of 11. 
Um, but the undertone has always been there. Um, whether it's through the comparisons of, you know, Tunde has graduated law school at the age of nine and you, mm-hmm. you are still in year one. You know, these undertones create a very competitive environment that consumes a lot of people. But those that are able to rise above it, they become something which, you know, you're talking to one of those people now. I certainly am. And that's why I was even interested to lean into that a little bit more, because we know that culture plays a massive impact on, on people. And the way we show up in the world, and like you said, it's either you have those kind of conversations on a regular basis in a lot of households, and it's either goes it goes one of two ways. It either goes the way where it drives you forward, like it did for you, or it holds you back and turns into something toxic. It has a massive weight on your shoulder, which you end up carrying around you. You don't end up doing much sometimes because you just can't handle that that pressure. So I was curious, so how did you go the other route how what was it that helped you to to be like you know what i'm going to take this challenge on and make make something of myself and be make my dad proud and be successful as you are you know it was it wasn't actually intentional uh my my journey has been a bit jaded um and somewhat gloomy at times i grew up in south london brixton and stockwell these these are very peculiar areas to grow up in um you know because it's marred by hooliganism it's marred by skullduggery it's just Young men, I mean, growing up, I didn't consider myself as part of a, uh, a, a, you know, a gang. I was just chilling with my friends mm-hmm. who happened to do mischievous things. Boys will be boys, quote unquote, if I may. Um, and those things ended up being criminal. C- can you see how we're breaking it down from boys will be boys, mischievous to criminality? And so when I grew up in that environment, um, I, I, it, I didn't look promising to anybody in my family at all. Um, so it wasn't actually an intentional decision for me. It was just being able to look at the statistics around me and looking at the patterns of my friends. They were in and out of jail. Um, they were scared for their lives. And most importantly, I was just a bad criminal. Like whenever I tried to be boys would be boys. <laughs> no, it just, no, but it's the truth. It didn't work for me. So everybody would still maybe sneak sneaker bars or Twix. I was still a one-piece sherbet. Like, the, the thing is one pence, and I would be the only one that would get caught. <laughs> and it was continuous. Like, you know, we, we might throw an egg at someone's door. It would always be me that they would describe, and police would come to my mom and dad's house. And I had to just be honest with myself and say, Guy, <laughs> this is not for you. Maybe we should go and study English literature and turn this life around. And, you know, and that's, that's, that's honestly in the most respectful and charming way. That's my journey. It was... I looked at my peers, I looked in the mirror and said, this is not sustainable. We need to do something about this. And I can't thank God enough that that thought even entered my head because my peers and my counterparts were not that privy and were not that privileged to be able to even think like that. Oh, that's amazing. What was your first business you had? <laughs> do you know what it is? So my first business, and, 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 and I'm, I'm hoping this doesn't go too far, but let me share this with you actually. So my first business was a, was a graphic design and wedding photography business. Um, and whenever I tell this story, people laugh. So if you know anything about wedding photography, it brings in a lot of money um, because people spend anything in the name of love and hate. Don't, don't, don't ever forget that. Um, and so we would go into lovebirds and couples who were in a euphoric state. They were willing to spend whatever it cost to capture that special moment. I would quote them £4,000 to about £8,000. Then I would outsource the work to an external company. And we were really good at branding and we did it really, really well that we were getting contracts and so forth. The issue was I got too greedy and I thought to myself, why am I paying the contractors? Isn't it just holding a camera in your hand and pushing a button? Oh, how naive I was. So I've excommunicated the contractors. I've hired a camera, the most expensive camera possible. Imagine this scene. I'm at someone's wedding. They are doing the kiss. Like the kiss is the money shot. And I don't know how to operate the camera that I'm holding in my hand exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, my, my journey is filled with laughter. Like, and I'm saying to people, entrepreneurship is not a perfect journey at all. It's how you're able to make those layers, turn them into paper mache and make a masterpiece out of it. But I pushed the button. It didn't work. But on top of the camera was a flash button. So I just kept on pushing the flash button to make them believe I was actually capturing what was going on. Cut long story short, that was the end of that business, as you can imagine. Um, so that was my first ever business. And that one was quickly, you know, shut down as quickly as we could. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, you know what? I need to ask, like, what happened? Like, what was that communication like with the couple? Because I can only imagine what that... We haven't got the money shot. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I, I mean, 
if you are married and you've had to pay a photographer for your money shot, you can imagine how you would be. So put yourself in that situation. Mm. We don't need to elongate this conversation more mm. than it is. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Just... You know, if the couples are listening to this, I'm a changed man. I am apologetic. I wish you guys all the best. <laughs> so one yeah, thing when it comes it. to when it comes to a lot of um, black businesses, especially raising money for to create and to generate business is hard. We've talked around there's a lot of conversations, especially the last number of years around like VC funding, getting loans, getting access to wealth, and all that kind of stuff. How have you managed to navigate that? Because you've you've done this by yourself and within your circle of friends rather than raising money or getting lending money from other people. So I think a lot of people are very interested to learn how you've managed to do that because I know we'll be able to help other businesses who are currently growing and struggling with that those pain points as well. Of course. I mean, that question is something I'm very passionate about. I'm very, very big on if you don't have to depend on VCs and release equity, it's important that you try to hold on to as much of your business as you can until you really have to. So one thing a lot of people don't know, especially budding or embryonic entrepreneurs, they don't know that if they have a good credit report, they have access to about £25,000 from the bank. Literally, a lot of entrepreneurs are so naive to their economical rights, if you want to call it that, or their, you know, their ability to access funding. You can go to any bank and it's unsecured. Apply for £25,000, whether as a personal individual or through your business. So when I started out, I understood this. So what I did was I would have, and this is very, very legal and there's nothing scandalous or scrupulous about this. It's just people don't know. I would register three limited companies and I would apply for £25,000 in each one of these limited companies. And then after I've done that, that's £75,000. I would also apply for £25,000 in my own name. That's £100,000. Even away from that, there are credit facilities or credit systems. Um, one of the mistakes we made with my restaurant when we first opened was we self-funded everything. It was after I'd been in the industry for two years, I discovered there's leasing agreements whereby companies will give you money to buy all the equipments you need and then you pay them back as your company makes the money. Credit is the bread and butter, but most importantly, the foundation of the Western world. You not being able to fund your idea is because you're simply put ignorant and you're arrogant. Ignorant because you don't know, arrogant because you won't ask for help. Mm. But if there are people out there who are asking for help, it might be they're asking for help in the wrong places. So where would you say would be the right places to ask for help when you're, when you're trying to grow? I think the mistake people make is they ask friends and family. That's one of the first mistakes you make um, on your entrepreneurial journey because people can't take you where they haven't been. No matter how optimistic they are, no matter how zealous they are, no matter how zestful they are, passion and you know, enthusiasm is limiting. You need to address and talk to people who have overcome this, the Goliath that you perceive before you. They can say to you, all we need is two stones and we've got this. But when you're surrounded by people who have never overcome the same challenges as you, you inadvertently and unintentionally, you limit your ability to grow. So my first advice is find yourself. I don't like the word, you know, because everyone uses the word mentor so loosely, but do find yourself a mentor. And when I say a mentor, don't just choose somebody based on their success. Choose them also on their character, because sometimes people will make you a lot of money at the cost of your own principles, at the cost of your own being. Choosing a mentor isn't just about success. You have to test their character. You have to test their philosophies, their religious precepts and beliefs. You know, so I think definitely mentorship. Um, read a lot. I mean, we all talk, we talk always about mentors, but the way the chronological systematic order of mentorship means at one point, somebody didn't have a mentor. If you think about it, if someone has a mentor, 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 the first person must not have had a mentor, but what they had was access to information. We have the internet. A lot of people are just using it wrongly to find out what Kim Kardashian and Kim K are up to, as opposed to using it to find out legislative um, policies that benefits them. And on this journey, you're going to have to read a lot. And that's where the magic is, your ability to digest and take information in quickly. So let's say you're, you've created your business, you've read, you're already engaged, you're starting to generate some sales, but you're not necessarily moving forward. But because you're working in the business, you don't necessarily have the the time to have the mental capacity of that space to even turn that knowledge of the books you've read into real actual wisdom. 
Is there anything that you suggest around helping people to in those in those situations? Can you find yourself time and time again? Because you're like, I just need to get from from today to tomorrow, and to get from today, that's what your mindset is. So it's like I don't have that time to really, really do what execute those plans and ideas I have in my head. I mean, before we started recording, one thing I, I kind of I kind of broke down to you about the system that I have in place is I have a very hands off approach to most of the businesses that I own, um, and that's because I understood what entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship is about how do you quickly efficiently and effectively pass your role to somebody else so that you can do what you do best as entrepreneurs we are innovators we are the ones that ideate we see opportunities where other people miss a lot of entrepreneurs have been missold the dream that it's about being rich entrepreneurship is actually more about job creation than anything else it's important that the second you make your first £1,000 in business, you need to quickly go and find somebody else that you can pass the baton to and say, hey, do you carry on doing what I used to do so that I can do what I need to do? It, it, it's, it's a puzzling moment for many people because they were told, quit your nine to five so you can start a job that will enrich you so you don't have to think about your nine to five. Well, I'm saying to you, even though you made a grand, you made two grand, you made 10 grand, you made 20 grand. That's where your suffering actually begins because that money should be passed on to recruiting people to maximize as quickly as possible because we need your mind, not your activity. As the trailblazers and as the person that's starting the business, you started with your mind, then your body followed. Let's now pass those roles to other individuals to toil on your behalf whilst you can begin to use your mind again. I mean, from a theological perspective, we say it is with the mind that we serve God. Well, beyond that only, even every idea, every concept, every motif that we have starts in the mind. So entrepreneurs, please protect your mind and let somebody else do the, the laboring. I 100% agree with that notion. But as a caveat, I'm going to come back to you that way. <laughs> entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs see their, a lot of entrepreneurs see their businesses as, as their baby. And they find it hard to let go, to let go of the reins. Because you're like... This is, this is mine. This is the idea I've had. I've kind of birthed this. Now you want me to then let go of that and let someone else run it? Like, how do you deal with that? Because that doesn't... And I've seen a lot of businesses break down because of that reason. And a lot of businesses not thrive because of that reason. But it happens repeatedly. So how do you learn to have that stand-up approach and let people do what they need to do so you can do what you need to do, like you just talked about? I mean, it, you said entrepreneurs see their business as their child. Even your child has to go to nursery one day. If you mm -hmm. are a believer in growth, there comes a point where you cannot have total control over that very embryo that's now a child. You have to let them grow. But most importantly, it's imperative that for your child's growth, they mingle with other people. It's paramount that any idea that will grow needs the injection of external perceptions or external views or, 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 or different people's vantage point. If you limit yourself to just your idea, I dare to say that you cannot be trusted about or with your own decision. How many times have we done stuff that surprised ourselves? And I'm like, how did I betray myself in that situation? So it's important that you bring people that are more specialized, who know more than you. For example, I don't think you have to know it all. I don't know nothing about accounting, but I've got a wicked Asian, 49 years old Asian accountant in my office who understands everything about HMRC and I know nothing. And I have no shame in saying I don't know about accounting, but I've been wise enough to choose someone who knows what I don't know. Steve Jobs didn't create iPad, but he was the visionary. He was the pioneer. He was the trailblazer that was intelligent enough to bring the right people on board. I, I always give this example. Um, and I, I say there's a parable in, in, in the Bible that talks about Simon catching so much fish that he had to beacon to his brethren on the other boats to come and help him. The situation is if you don't ask people for help, what you've caught could end up tipping back into the ocean. So it's important that at the right time, you pass your load to somebody else. Yes, it's your baby, but between me and you, it can die within you, around you, because you didn't let it go in time. You have to learn to just bring other people into nursing. We have midwives that even after you've given birth to a child, they still come and visit you to make sure everything is working the way it's supposed to be working. That's how it is in business. Uh, that, is, that is such a dope analogy. That's that's a Thank great you. way to actually to actually write that. Actually. I really really like that one. I saw you nodding your head. You were like, mm, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm feeling that one right now. <laughs> if you use it, I will sue you. I have lawyers on deck. <laughs> I want to talk to you about um, talking drum, African fine dining. 
we tried. What, 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 what was the inspiration be, behind bringing, I'm guessing, home to to London and bringing it to London in that particular way? I mean, good, good question. So I, I have this idea that we've been here too long not to have some of the things that we're now talking about. I Importantly, most of us, um, as much as we love Africa and we're patriotic, Africa somehow, somewhere, and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, it's more like a stepfather to us. Um, whereas England is somewhat more of a father to us. And we are more British than we are, um, you know, African, because we spend more time here than anything else. For me, I looked at it and I kind of predicted as entrepreneurs, our job is to predict what we think the next trend is. I look at the rise of Afrobeat, for example. Afrobeat is on the rise. People are loving our music. People are loving our culture. It was now about bridging the gap between the British experience with authentic African dining. Um, and typically when you see an African restaurant open up, the interior design is shabby. The customer service is abysmal. The whole experience, um, it, you know, causes you the question, why did I come here in the first place? Um, and and it, it, so it wasn't that difficult to come into the market and change it. All we had to do was give you an amazing interior design. We had to give you amazing customer service. But most importantly, we had to bridge the presentation of the menu in a way that you reckon with because you're now British more than you are African. So that was literally kind of the motivation behind Talking Drum when I sat down with my team and say and said, how can we do it better? So Talking Drum is like emblematic of doing African food better, particularly West African with like a French, Italian culinary, culinary discipline, as my, my, my head chef likes me to say it. Um, but yeah, that, that was the motivation behind it. It was just about time that we had something of our own. Do away with the Novakovs, do away with the Pachinoa, do away with the Hutongs and give our people something that they can reckon with, with an amazing ambiance. And I think we were able to achieve that with Talking John. We've done well. I'm proud. What's been your biggest challenge with it? If you love yourself, don't go into hospitality. Okay. Like, I, I allow me to, and, and I'm, I'm a big pusher of this. Like, hospitality is one of the industries that will consume, consume, consume. It's a gift you have to constantly keep giving to in hope that one day it will yield itself. If you want to liken it to anything, you know, you know, African families, we have a sieve where we pour the rice and the water and the water comes out, but the rice stays in. So with hospitality, the water is the money. You lose a lot of money, um, but you have a lot of clout. <laughs> so a lot of people will be like, oh, you own talking drum. Oh my God, my guy. Oh my God. Oh my God. But my guy, you don't know how much bills I've paid today. So please don't, don't, don't my guy me. Hospitality is very consumptive. It takes your energy. It takes your will. It takes your drive. It takes your heart. Um, and the benefit that I have, again, comes back to team. When we did Talking Drum, most entrepreneurs wait for their businesses to fail before they bring consultants in. I was smart enough to bring the consultants in from the beginning. And that cost a lot of money, which comes back to the issue you addressed first. Most new startups don't have the funds to, to be able to bring consultants in in the beginning. They also don't have the funds to train their staff. They just want to open, open, open and make money, make money, make money. And it doesn't work like that. So with Talking Drum... The challenge was very money orientated. It takes a lot. Um, when I say to people, it costs just under a million to make that place operate and open up. A lot of people are taken aback. But if you know anything about hospitality, it it's very costly. You have one machine. It could be your fridge freezer that costs you £5,000. It could be your cooker that costs £8,000. Um, it, it's really consumptive. So I say to my worst enemy, don't go into hospitality unless you have alternative businesses that have already been making money or you have external investors don't do it by yourself. Talk to anybody in hospitality, they'll tell you that. Wow. Sounds like a, <laughs> a rewarding but very, very tough kind of industry and venture to, to take up take up the mantle for. Do you, know, do you know what it is? To interject you, um, it's seductive. The, the issue is that when you go into industries that are seductive, you pay a price for that. We sell toilets and bathrooms, and I'm happy to divulge this data to you. We make £38,000 every single month from selling toilets and bathroom because every house needs a toilet. You know, so our average sales on a day is minimum of a thousand to two thousand pounds and it fluctuates here and there, um, upwards of one thousand pounds. But nobody glamorizes that. I don't go out and people are like, oh my God, you're that guy that sells toilets. You know, there's nothing, you know, popular about it. And when you look at hospitality with TV shows, TV programs like Power, where you see the character known as Ghost walks into his club. We all somehow put ourselves in that shoe 
and we want to be recognized for something grandiose. And I'm saying to you, entrepreneurs, do away with the grandiose um, businesses and do the things that are needful because they'll bring you more money and less stress. Again, some solid good words of wisdom coming coming through right now. And you work a lot with your friends, don't you? As in you have a very, very tight circle of friends that you associate oh. with on a regular basis. You, you, you have to. Um, you know, you, you get to a point where um, I, I give this dynamic, which is that we are middle class. So, you know, money doesn't make you upper class in any shape or form. Um, you know, it's your lineage. It's my, my, the fact that my children will go to private school and mingle with other kids in private school. That makes them upper class. We're middle class. So when you've made money, you're not good enough for the people at the top. So they, they, they keep you down. But you're too bougie for the people that you left behind. So, the, you know, it becomes a really tight ham sandwich kind of approach where you're the ham in the middle. Um, and so you, you, you learn to keep a very, very tight rein on your immediate network. Um, because number one, it's safe. Number two, you all have the same thing to lose, which is credibility. But most importantly, you're friends with people that are not intimidated by your success. The worst thing you can have is friendship with people who are intimidated by your success because every advice they will give to you will be destructive because they need you back where they still are at. So yeah, it's important to roll with people like-mindedness. Did you ever feel a, a pull from the friends that you grew up with trying to pull you back into a, an old life that you, like you talked about previously or did you completely manage to just detach and just separate yourself from them? There, there was two, two ways around it actually. Um, I, I had that. But it dawned on me that extreme circumstances require extreme positioning. I had to be extreme in order to save my life. And whoever's listening to this, your extreme positioning might not be between you and your friends. It might be with you and your family. Some people's unsupportive friend is their mom, is their dad. And some people don't realize that even success is in the atmosphere. You living in a toxic environment can impact your ability to think or ponder or create certain thoughts. There's a, there's a law that says until man can get past what he will eat, what he will wear and what he will, where he will sleep, some thoughts will never enter his mind. So if you're still dealing with, you know, a disgruntled neighborhood or disgruntled environment where your mom doesn't like your ideas, she doesn't believe in your ideas, that's toxic for you. So for me, I had to escape from that kind of world, which was my friends and some of my family, because they didn't, they weren't convinced about what I was trying to do. They weren't convinced about this journey. You want to be a businessman. You want to study English literature. Last week, you was a gang member. Now you're a school teacher. Now you want to be an entrepreneur. And you can't blame them at all. Um, but sometimes people don't believe in your journey until you actually show it to them. So sometimes you have to make those extreme movements and excommunicate yourself from everybody. At the end of the day, you owe it to yourself to become the best version of yourself. Because if you fail, the very same people will ask you, what did you do with yourself? So it's important that you put yourself first. That's a, uh, when I think about the way that I, I live and something that I talk about time and time again, it's before you can lead other people, you need to learn how to lead yourself first. And what you're, what you're talking about speaks really, really into that because a lot of times it's like, oh, I can't do that. That's, that's selfish. Oh, I can't do that. I've got people to, to look after. I've got relationships to maintain. But if you don't leave those toxic environments and you stay there, you will stay stuck and you will live a life of medi mediocrity, which is not necessarily what you've been called for, but because you chose to stay stuck and stay in a toxic environment just due to whatever connections that you thought were real, that's not, that's not necessarily, that's not living, that's just existing, isn't it? I mean, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, people underestimate the power of influence. So for example, I, I don't watch um, public news. Um, I would rather pay for my news. When you pay for your news, you, you, you know, you're a bit, it's more selective, it's more premium. Um, I don't watch certain programs, I don't watch certain shows because it reinforces the stereotype of certain, you know, behavior. People underestimate how influ easily influenced we all are. And because we are all easily influenced, because we're constantly surrounded by marketing, data, information, suggestive information anyway, you don't realize that the choosing of your friends is very impactful in your patterns, in your decision-making, in your processing. Sometimes you need to excommunicate yourself, ostracize yourself, remove yourself from your norm so that you can think differently. COVID has been an amazing help for some people because it's given them the opportunity to realize the things I thought I needed, I don't actually need. The crutches that I thought I needed to walk, I don't actually need. I can actually walk by myself. I've just been prolonging my healing. So I think entrepreneurs, it's important that please, 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 if you're, if you find that there's a friend that doesn't believe in you, 
Don't live trying to prove anything to them whilst they're there. Excommunicate yourself. You are doing yourself greater help and providing yourself greater clarity by just removing yourself from anyone that doesn't believe in you. You, you, you. It's better to be by yourself and believe in yourself than carry a bunch of people who are just doubting you and waiting for you to fail. That's so true. And leaning into what we're talking about right now, even around around self, you finish early on a Friday and you try, I think you don't work weekends at all. For you, that's like your your time and your family time. Yes, it is. Like, you know too much. Like, who told you that? Was it my publicist? You know, you know. I, I, I had to break character for a second. I was like, is this guy been stalking me? Like, all the English was out the window. Um, but yeah, no, you you, you were right. So Friday, um, I have a routine whereby my barber comes to my house at 1 p.m. and he cuts my hair. I do an IG live with people whereby we tackle entrepreneurs, businesses, issues, and we just have banterful conversation. Um, and then we open up a bottle of Verve Pico and oysters. I'm a big fan of oysters. Um, and it's like my routine. We eat some oysters. He goes about his business. 3 p.m. I'm not interested. You can send me an email and tell me you want to pay us 10 million. If it can't wait till Monday, I don't want the money. Um, you know, and that's kind of like my routine. And then in the evening, I'm with the guys. We go out to eat. Saturday, recover from having so much of an amazing evening with the guys from arguing and debating about politics. Sunday, I take the family out. So every single Sunday, me and the family, wherever it is that they want to go to, whether it's bungee jumping, whether it's um, clay shooting, swimming, um, helicopter rides, we, we have someone in the family group that actually plans it and, and we cover the cost and we go and do it every single Sunday because I, I, I took a lot of time out from family trying to build what I've become today. And so I'm just in overdraft right now with the family and trying to make sure I redeem myself as much as possible and, you know, enjoy the moments with, with them because all of this is for family. If you're doing it for any other reason, you're mistaken. Um, it's either for the family that you hope to have or the family that you currently have. Rather than always painting a rosy picture like you talked around around entrepreneurship, <laughs> I want to like get into some of the the sacrifices and the the realness behind what it takes to actually create a successful business because like you talked about family is one thing that you have to effectively push the back burner so like what are the other sacrifices that you've had to experience and go through for you to, be able to build up to what you've done now the first one is that ccjs are overrated um as an entrepreneur don't be scared of ccjs <laughs> like we have received more ccjs than we receive thank you cards and those of you that don't know what ccj is keep being an entrepreneur and you'll figure out what that is um, and the way CCJs works, when I remember the first time I got a CCJ as an entrepreneur, I broke down. I was like, this is the end of my business. Oh my God. Not realizing that, well, if you pay it within 30 days, they will actually remove the CCJ. So much so now we sometimes let companies give us CCJ and we buy time. Um, and then we pay them <laughs> within the threshold and say, Hey guys, oh yeah, remove the CCJ. Um, th the journey isn't easy. It is so sacrificial that no one tells you about it. There are moments you just wake up and you just want to cry. Like you don't know why you don't, you don't even have to receive bad news and your emotions is just so burdened and so heavy that you just want to break down and cry. Let's talk about the sleep deprivation. I mean, people are talking about it's important to have nine hours sleep every single day. As an entrepreneur, you are not graced like that. And that's the truth of the matter because you are driven by this fuel to prove something to yourself. And or most importantly, the more you go into this journey, you discover so much about yourself you didn't really know existed. I didn't know I was intelligent. I didn't know I was a strategist. I didn't know I was a brand specialist. I didn't know um, I was intelligent. I was cognizant. There were so much things I didn't know about myself until I started this journey. And it can become so addictive that you keep going into it, going into it, that you begin to lose connection with those that you love, those that you care for. So that's one of the you know aspects of the journey. The rejection rates, it's crazy. Like you get rejected a thousand times and you might get accepted half a time. And that half is, is it's, you know, it's, it's heart-wrenching because you're like, did they say yes or did they say maybe? <laughs> you know, and you're like, what do we do here? And then you have nights where you can't sleep because that deal could change your whole life. And then the next day that deal didn't go through and you spent nine hours or nine days or nine months or nine years for that very, very moment for it just to flop right in front of you. That's entrepreneurship. Like I say to people, if you want peace, tranquility, stay nine to five. Let your employer pay you every month. 
you know, take sick days and go on holidays. As entrepreneurs, we don't get that. When I go on holiday, I have two laptops with me. I have four phones. If I'm not talking to China, I'm talking to England. If I'm not talking to England, I'm talking to my guys on site. There's just so much going on, but it is rewarding because for the first time in your life, you're building something for you, not for someone else. But it's not easy. It's not. How would you define what success means to you? I love that question. Thank you for asking it. Success for me has nothing to do with how much money I can amass. Um, I have a saying that says, what is it worth if a man achieves a lot of money but doesn't become a whole lot of persons? I think it's important to become a whole lot of person than to have a lot of money. The mistake that some entrepreneurs make is that they wait to become really rich before becoming a whole lot of person. Um, and you see it with the Steve Jobs and some of these people who now want to throw millions back into the community. But I think for me, success is defined differently for each person. Mine is based by based on how many people I can create jobs for within my community. My community being people that have the same affinity as me. Um, I, I, I've seen, you know, how people go to job interviews and though they are overqualified, they marginalize, they debased or overlooked because of their skin tone. And I'm really heavily pushed by that. Um, so much so that I, I'm strongly, you know, of the opinion that everyone in position of power within my company have the same affinity as me. Because I, as an entrepreneur, I've been able to create that opportunity and that platform for them. So for me, success is how many people that look like me can I create jobs for? That's, that's very important to me. And I think people don't want to talk about that because they don't want to upset the other side. But I don't think the other side would be upset. I think, if anything, if they are for us, they want this for us. I, I do not think there's any upsetting whatsoever. It's, it's the real talk. <laughs> it's the reality. When we talk about creating change, when we talk about economic growth, wealth creation, especially within um, our economy, the black economy, it needs to happen with us. Uh, we can't keep on looking for that to come from other people. We need to start to create that for ourselves. And that comes by having our own businesses that are successful, and then we can put our people into, into position, into place, and then they can have to start to create that multiplier effect, that legacy that we see happening in other communities. That's what happens with those all these big companies that have um, white leaders that sat on top of them. They'll bring their, their children in and they keep that going. And everyone uses the Rothschild as an example. That's decades and centuries going through the family because they've kept it going. There's nothing wrong with us doing that, nothing aspiring to do that. So hearing you say that is, is key, is, it's important for us. Thank you. I mean, do you know what? This is why it's also important that you understand the layout of your business. A lot of entrepreneurs are very naive and myopic and short-sighted. They just think success from the beginning, but you should also think about the legacy of your business, which is why one of the reasons I've been very careful to welcome external investments from anybody that doesn't particularly look like me or doesn't share the same values as my people or people that, you know, are from the same community as me. When you have investors that are predominantly Caucasians, um, or whatever other race, you are obligated somehow not to upset them. And I've seen how many entrepreneurs have created policies around their businesses that safeguards them from that, which is why I've gone into sectors that have been very independent of any external factors or external beings that can influence my decision or how many people I can create jobs for within my community. And that's really, really important. And this is not for all of us. Some of you will need external investors and I respect your journey, but we do need more people who are not pandering to the other side, but can pander to the side that matters. Have you found that that has slowed you down in any way, shape or form at all? Profound question. Very, very profound question. And it, it, it has. Um, we, we, let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade. When you are authentically yourself and you don't fit the stencil, um, the mold, the stereotypes that society expects for you, you will have some stumbling blocks. But like I said to you, it's more important for me to become a whole lot of person than it is to become, a, a, you know, extremely wealthy. Um, you know, so I think that's the journey and that's the burden I've chosen to carry. Trailblazers and real policymakers, they're not immediately favored. They're not immediately at the forefront. But the eventuality of it is that everyone will one day understand their journey and why they've been doing what they've been doing. So yeah, you're right. I could have succumbed and signed... 50 million pounds deals a long time ago. Um, from young, I've been offered a lot of money, like candidly a lot of money by establishments and institutions to just do what they need me to do and be the poster child for their company. There are many people within our community who are poster child for a very extremely racist institution. Um, as an entrepreneur, you have to choose from the beginning, from right now, from the time that you're hearing this conversation, 
what type of entrepreneur do you want to be? Do you want to be the one that sold us out? Or do you want to be the one that's actually so for us that you won't compromise it at any cost? And money is a major compromiser of all things. That's so true. I'm talking about compromise. What are your your key values that you that you live by, the non-negotiables? Um, do you know what? It's, it's hard in this day and age to have integrity. And integrity has nothing to do with truth. Integrity has to do with the continuation or the continuity of your character. Um, I try my best not to let people change me. Um, it's important that on this journey, as burdensome as it is, as tiresome as it is, and as much as you're going to meet a lot of bad people who will not keep up to their word, you shouldn't allow bad people to change you. It's important that you maintain your good at all costs. Just narrow down the circle of people you're being good to. So for me, you know, I'm big on giving. I'm big on being sacrificial. Um, I'm big on redistribution of wealth. Um, and, and these are things that I always look at, um, at in every single thing that I do. Um, God is also at the forefront of everything that I do. I think when you remove God from what you do, who is it that you're answerable to for how you treat your fellow man? Um, and I think that allows me to have a conscience in every transaction that I do. Um, and I try my best not to not to cheat anyone out of anything, but to try to be as, again, integral as possible. So I think integrity is at the forefront of the things I do. And um, excellence. Everything I produce and create, every business I have has this. So much so people often say to me, we thought it was owned by a white man. Um, and I don't know what that means. Um, but every business I own has a particular stamp of approval of excellence. It's well orchestrated, well executed, well structured, um, and extremely, extremely, extremely well thought out. And I think as entrepreneurs, don't get caught up in wanting to do it quickly that you don't do it right. I can write my ideas in a book, lose it on a plane, and nobody can execute it like I can because no one can do me like me. And it's important that you understand that no one can do you like you, even if they have your idea. Don't rush it. Do it right. Do it you. Be authentic, man. That's the, that's the realness. Do your, do your values play a massive part when you're selecting your team because you've talked about putting people in positions so do you use your values as a measure of this is this is the right person for me or is there something in particular that you that helps you select the right person or right people good question i mean being being a black entrepreneur and between me and you respectfully there's uh micro businesses there's um small businesses there's medium-sized businesses and it's all based on how much staff you have um so micro is micro is like zero to ten um small is 10 to 49 medium is 50 and above i'm in the medium i have more than 50 people that i'm responsible for on a monthly basis um and, and i'm proud of that um but i don't choose the team i chosen my core team my operation managers and one of the first thing i look at when i'm dealing with people is i'm real like because i'm working with real people i want real people so i don't ask them silly questions like why do you want this job Guy, they want the job because they want to pay the bill. Why, why, why are you asking a rhetorical question? <laughs> it's like, why do we still ask that question? It's 2021. Can we get beyond that? I ask them questions that throws them off, which is, have you ever been sick before? Have you, have you ever not been sick before and called in sick? And they're like, huh? Have you ever been hangover? Or oh, I say to them on a Friday night, what do you do? Uh, I might go out. Do you get hangovers? How, how long does your hangovers last for? So that I begin to gauge that this guy is not someone that will come in on Saturday. And sometimes I throw them off. I'll come to an interview and I'm like, here's a beer. Let's talk. How's your day been? I don't want to be, you know, stringent. Let's just chill. Let's just relax. But mind you, by the time they get to me, they've already done three interviews. So we've already checked their qualification. We've already checked that they're competent. Now it's about, can we get along as human beings? And I've had, again, other races sit down and say, are you the owner? And I'm like, yes. And they've been happy to go through the interview process with black operation managers. But once they find out, once they found out that he was a black owner, they were no longer interested in working for the company. Can you imagine? Wow. People don't want to talk about that. There are a group of people that are not yet prepared for black entrepreneurs because they believe we either won't pay them because we're scrupulous, scandalous, something, you know, you know, weird, whatever they want to call it. But most importantly, because some people can't stomach working for someone like us. And that's real. Wow, that's 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 spinning me. I ain't gonna lie. I'm like, what in this day and age? I, like, that's still can, that's still a problem. I, I can confident. I can confident. See, a lot of respectfully, like I'm I'm still looking for people who have as much employees as I have, and that's me being respectful. People are entrepreneurs and they mean well, but this day and age, entrepreneurs is defined by opening up an Instagram profile and saying, "I sell wig, I sell lashes." But we're not talking about that kind. That's why I had to break down the SMEs and so forth. When you are at this level. 
you go through so many recruitment processes and in so many different fields and sectors. I've got a construction business. We build houses from scratch. I get updates on sites as we're talking. We're building, like we buy land and we build from scratch, like in terms of stupid units. So I get to recruit and see the experience from the recruitment world. I get to see the vantage point of the hospitality industry. I get to understand the grooming industry. I get to understand my Chinese sourcing business where we source things for different companies. We just recently sourced a thousand electrical scooters. When you are so diversely, you know, situated, you see the world for what it is. And there are people who are not yet prepared to work for black people. Sometimes it is black people. That's a that's a reality check right there. That this when we talk around racism, being real, being in your face, existing, and this is what we're talking about. This is examples of what we're talking about. That this is how we can show up in organizations. You can go through and you get to the point. You're like, I ain't working for that that team that own it just because the person is black. That's ridiculous. Yeah, one thousand percent. It's it's our reality, unfortunately. Um, I, I think leadership in its truest form is exemplary. Um, you know, people love to work for people who set an example for them or to them. Um, so I think for me, I'm very happy to go into some of the industries that I own and get stuck in. Um, whether it's the construction site, I'll be in the, in the ground digging with the guys. Um, if it's the salon, I might go in at the end and just mingle with some of the managers. Um, the thing is this, I have employees that don't even know who I am. And that's a beautiful thing in itself. But the operations managers themselves, they know who I am. Yeah, so I, I have, you know, um, operations managers that I deal with directly. Um, I'm able to communicate with my operations managers directly. And I set an example to them. And leadership trickles down from the management team. Then it goes to the next batch of teams. If you are... If you manage your leadership team well, they will pass that kind of culture to the team, um, you know, underneath them. If you don't manage your operations team well, you will pay the price eventually because the fruits of the bottom will fall off. Okay. What's next for you? I mean, with, <laughs> with the multiple business that you're running, with the conversations that you're having, what what comes next? What keeps you going do you know what? That's a good question. I think the thing that keeps me going is that there's so much responsibilities. Um, I, I say to, you know, some people when they ask me this question, like, how do you do it? And it's not a question of how do you do it, it's you have no choice but to do it. When you give birth to a child, you, you, you don't think to yourself, like, I don't want to be doing this anymore. You, that, that child looks to you like this, like, yo, <laughs> like, well, go on, like, how are we going to eat today? Like, you know, and... Even when they use the word dada, they, they're not just using the word dada as in dad, I love you. They like, yo, like do, do your, do your stuff, like pay the bills, you know, shelter me. And there's so much, you know, subliminals in that kind of, you know, example. When you get to the level that I'm at, you just have an obligation to make sure that you provide and you make the dots connect. Employees are planning weddings. They're planning their mortgage purchases off the backdrop of your idea. That is scary. You have no choice but to show up, um, and continue to, Make sure you sustain that business, you innovate. Innovation is very important. Constantly ask yourself as an entrepreneur, how can I make it better? TD, my restaurant, for example, really looks amazing, but we've even spent more money during lockdown whilst we've not been open on making it look even more better. So when we do, more better is not a word, but even better. Um, so that when we do return, it's even, it's, it's ready and it's competitive. Constantly ask yourself, how can I make it better? And I think that is very, very important. Uh, and diversifying again, just, you know, the e-commerce business, um, we went into that because there's two sides of the e-commerce business. We source things for other people um, and then, you know, we give it to them. Obviously, I've got a Chinese warehouse, China business, and I've also got a Chinese mobile and Chinese bank account. So I source from China as though I'm a Chinese national. I don't source on Alibaba like everybody else. So that's really, really growing. We're now doing partnership with major companies that want containers galore. We get one container coming in every single week. And the second part for that is we also sell stuff online. So that's something I really want to focus on because the future is e-commerce. And from there, we'll look into logistics. Logistics is a very big business. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're not sure what industry to go into, logistics is definitely something to go into. Robotics is something to go into um, and invest in. So what, right now, we're also looking at just par partnering up with people who have great ideas and just letting them do their thing. Um, and an example is 
with one of the developments that we're developing, we've got a commercial unit at the bottom. That commercial unit, I've gone into partnership with someone to run an estate agent on our behalf so that all the houses that we used to sell through another estate agent is now being sold by us. You know, so partnership dynamics is it's the future now. And I'm not doing anything outside of what I already do. So when I people think I'm people say I'm diversifying, I'm not doing more than what's already in my field. We build houses, we sell houses. I've now got an estate agent that I own the majority share of to sell the houses for me. And they're like, how do you do all of this? I'm not really doing anything. I just, you know, can, you can kind of see the chain. And it's better to diversify up and down the chain than to go sideways. That is that is critical. That is a critical piece of, of advice. I think so often people look at it as, as multiple lanes and they're going off in multiple directions and you can't, like, there's a, there's a whole proverb, you can't, if you chase two rabbits, you're never going to catch any, as opposed to, actually, it's one, it's one path, <laughs> but on that path, you have different junctions, and that's what you're doing, as opposed to having multiple lanes, so that is, that is critical for people to really understand, especially in the entrepreneurship game, to like, focus on your lane, stay in your lane, but you can have different junctions off that lane, which help you then to then diversify your portfolio even more. Extremely critical, I mean, even with, you know, the fact that we do houses, our houses are finished to a luxury finish because we source from China, you know. So it's, again, like you said, it's lineal. We source from China, put all the materials, all the furnishings, all the bathrooms, all the chairs, all the sofas. We've bought them at very, very cheap prices as opposed to the UK rapacious taxation priced system, you know. And then we put in the houses and people are like, your houses are beautiful. So we become the interior designers. We become the sellers and that's what you want to be focusing on so that you're just circulating the money within your own kind of empire. And that's how you build an empire. Not that you have to own every single thing around you. Man, Michael, you you dropped some some gems, some gems in this conversation, like real Thank talk. You. And it's been, I think it's been a pleasure just hearing your, hearing your journey, hearing what's possible. Because that's also very, very important. Just be like, you know what? There are people in this game, whether you know about them or you don't, well, now you definitely know about Michael, who are making making moves, making industry changes, who actually are a Black-owned business, multiple businesses who are successful. But it's also about keeping that money in the, in the economy and putting the right people into place and not necessarily being in the business and working on that full-time. So I hope people are, are listening, people are learning, which I'm sure they will be. So really, really appreciate this conversation, man. Thank you for having me. And I can't commend you enough for the questions that you've asked. It's one thing um, to be deep, but deep calls to the deep. And I think the, the depth of you has been able to connect with the depth that I have to share today. So thank you so, so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them you can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes you can just press a button and ask me that question and i'll answer it on the next episode don't forget to subscribe comment share this podcast with someone else we'll see you next time on everyday leadership